Pastor Colleen is at the back for Bible boxes. For those of you who would like to decorate your children. The rest of us, let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. The 8th chapter of the first letter that Paul wrote to his church in Corinth, where he was a pastor for several years. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we'll read that in just a moment. A few years ago, the Pew Forum reported that there are over 41,000 different denominations within the Christian church or organizations within the Christian church. They note, of course, that some of these denominations could, in fact, envelop their grandchildren and great-grandchildren within their movement because they have lots of similarity to that. But whatever the actual number, it is very clear that from global Christianity, our faith is complex. It has many flavors and emphases, worship styles, undoubtedly differences in theology, whether it's practical or systematic or biblical theology. There is a great variety in this amazing faith that we share together with our world. The varieties shrink, though, dramatically when we come to the United States. We have perhaps 41,000 or so, but in the United States, there's only identified as 217 official ones, according to the Hartford Institute. Now, although there are dominant denominations in these states, I like this chart because it gives you a sense of kind of where the various denominations uh, take precedence, but they are in every state, and all different varieties are around us. Uh, We are predominantly Catholic, as Christians in California, but obviously there are many other uh, branches of the church here as well. Now the question that that raises for us, especially when you look at the 41,000, but even the 217, the question is this. If Jesus Christ is honored in so many different ways, then is it just a matter of taste? We like the free Methodist flavor. Other people like the Catholic or the Baptist or the Presbyterian or the Pentecostal or the Orthodox or the Coptic. Is there any discernible difference that matters? Well, as you can imagine, throughout all these different denominations, not just within the United States, but throughout the world, there is not agreement on whether these differences matter. In fact, there's not even agreement on whether all of them honor Jesus as we mean it within the various traditions, let alone whether those differences are of significance. But it seems that most Christians recognize that we're a part of something far greater uh, than just our little denomination or our own little congregation. God's story is vast. It is multilingual. It's multicultural. It is intended to be told to every person in every nation throughout this planet. And God's love is not limited to certain denominations or certain branches of the faith. God loves his people. So the question, of course, that raises for all of us is how did we get here? What is it within human beings that caused us to create all of these little cliques and organizations and us, them, uh, kinds of distinctions and categories that often then go to the next step and betray the love that God intends for us to express towards all people, let alone those all 
within his kingdom and within his church. And even more to the point, how is it that this human divisiveness that so plagues humanity as a whole creeps into the church? Shouldn't we be united? Isn't it, in fact, by our unity and by our love that we are to be known? Isn't that exactly what it means to be Christian? Well, to get at all that, we're going to go uh, back to a time period about 20 years after Jesus Christ died and resurrected and ascended into heaven. It seems that within 20 years of Jesus, Paul is writing here to a church in Corinth, and the people there are starting to divide themselves up by who it is they're going to follow. Some are going to follow Paul, they say. I follow Apollos. Others say, well, I follow Peter. Some even say, well, we're the true Christ ones. We follow Christ. And rather than recognizing that these human leaders and Christ not being able to be divided, and that these human leaders bring insights and understandings that cause great um, uh, understanding of the diversity and complexity of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, these religious groups began to create a sense of superiority. We're better because we follow Paul or we follow Peter or we follow Christ. And they judge others who are not in their group as lesser Christians. And over time exclude them from the us that is right. And they now become the them that are wrong. Now I'd like to say that it ended in Corinth. That Paul wrote this letter saying you cannot do that in the church of Jesus Christ. And that in the 2,000 years since Corinth, the church has not divided. But we are more divided today than at any time in human history. It's a human tendency to do so. We find the flavor that nourishes our spirit, and instead of appreciating the diversity that is the church, we slip into superiority and an arrogance that causes not just this wonderful, flavorful, beautiful, complex faith, but a divisiveness within us. So we want to listen to how God told us at the very beginning, it shall not be so among you. What, what does it look like? And we're going to go back to the, to the Apostle Paul. Now, he's the pastor of this church. So he's, he's simply doing what I'm doing now, which is teaching the people what God says about unity and about how we're to, to come together. And he uses a, a specific opportunity. It's called a teachable moment in order to teach a principle that would apply uh, to today and the various aspects that we face in, in our, our uh, modern Christian life. It has to do with food sacrificed to idols. So let's turn to chapter 8, verse 1, and we're going to go through uh, verse 13. Now, the NIV translator is titled, as, as you can see, concerning food sacrificed to idols. And Paul says, now, about food sacrificed to idols. And now what he's going to do is he's going to establish a principle and then apply that principle to the situation of food being sacrificed to idols. We're going to talk primarily about the principle, but I want to read the whole thing so you can see how he uses that principle and applies it to a specific situation. It says, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all possess knowledge. 
But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So then, that being the principle, what about eating food sacrificed to idols? We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world. That's our knowledge. And that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, or as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things come and from for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. But food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat, and no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. I'll keep that open before you. Let's pray. Father, in this wonderful moment, when we're in your house, we're united with your people. We're about to celebrate this sacrament that is celebrated throughout the world in all churches and all branches of your faith. We have to admit that there's divisiveness within our own hearts, let alone within our churches throughout the world. We would ask that as you speak to us individually, as you help each of us to grow, uh, that each of us might respond to you and to your love and know you and know your love and that that would cause us to build up not just who we are but who we are in relationship to all others. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, as I said, the principle that Paul's using, and it's a universal beyond this example of just this teachable moment about what do we do with the fact that all meat served in Corinth was most probably sacrificed at some point to an idol. Does that mean that we don't eat meat? And it's found in those first three verses, and it could apply to anything. So I want you to not just think in terms of this. We'll apply it a little bit to this, but think of it in the broader terms. Now, to apply this to the problem of eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. But knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. So knowledge puffs up 
while love builds up. Now think for a moment about how that is not true. It is true if knowledge has somehow become a possession that is outside of our love for God. That we think there's this knowledge that we can gain that doesn't directly relate to the love that we have for God. Another way of saying it is this. It is true if knowledge is somehow seen as something I possess, but something you don't possess. Therefore, it is true if knowledge gives me a sense of superiority. I'm puffed up by my knowledge and my understanding education. And therefore, you are not my equal. And I'm not required then to treat you as such, regardless of what the love of God would say. But think about how it is true. It is not true if our knowledge causes us to know and love God and know and love others and know and love ourselves. The statement that Paul makes is distinguishing the fact that if love and knowledge are blended into one attitude and relationship towards God and towards others, then we are not puffed up by understanding. Understanding now becomes an ability to provide true, wise, compassionate, not codependent love. We're truly able to care for one another in a way that extends his grace in a building up experience. Now, I want to I penetrate that just a little. The knowledge that Paul is describing here is the Greek word gnosis. In this instance and in this context, it's theological knowledge or religious knowledge. How do we know the faith? A knowledge about idols in this specific instance, a knowledge about pagan ritual, a knowledge about true deity. It is a knowledge about how we don't have to be afraid of that which in fact does not exist. These idols are not representing any deity and any meat offered to them is like any other meat because there's nothing there. We know that because we have gnosis. We have theological knowledge. We've been told the truth about the divine and the spiritual. But this gnosis, it seems, in the people of Corinth, rather than setting people free from the fear of these powerful and capricious gods that had been feared from the Bronze Age to the Christian era by the people of Greece and Rome throughout that whole Mediterranean region, instead of lovingly setting people free, they had taken it as a superiority to the culture, we know more than they do. And they put themselves down. So they are puffed up by their knowledge rather than getting the love of God. The Greek word Paul uses there, phuziao, comes from the root word phuo. And it means simply to blow, to huff and puff and arrogantly strut one's erudite superiority over these who still fear idols. And you can sense the attitude uh, that had come in where somehow our knowledge 
makes us so much better than these who are so ignorant as to think something different. When it's not used with love and in service to love, knowledge puffs up. We do not know as we should know. Now, as Christians living in a, in a diverse Christianity, even within our own little city of Santa Barbara, we often engage with other Christians in discussions about theology, about gnosis. And we know exactly what Paul is talking about. We've all talked with people who feel as though they are superior to us because of the knowledge and understanding that they have in their lives. And being an, having an inflated opinion of themselves or their church or their theology, they talk down to us and to others. But let's not talk about them. Let's talk about ourselves. We know as Wesleyans that love is the primary ingredient of the Christian life. We know that without love, knowledge is offensive. But if our knowledge of that fact makes us in any way actually not love the person with whom we are discussing theology, then our knowledge about love has become a puffed-up, inflated superiority to those who live a different kind of Christianity. If we do not, in fact, love each person as we discuss as equals before the foot of Christ, what it is we think is true and life-giving and joy-filled, then we've simply turned our knowledge about love into simply gnosis and a, a puffing up, a superiority to others and we are not loving. Love, Paul says, builds up. It is a selfless kind of love. This wonderful biblical divine agape that lays down its life for the beloved. It's a selfless love that looks not to your own interest, but it looks to the interests of others. How in this conversation can I bring the love of God such that we create closer unity and understanding as we experience God's true knowledge of relationship and love and truth, not only about the things that do not exist and that have so plagued us as humanity, but about the one who does exist and who creates a whole different way of interacting, a whole different way of living with nature than to be afraid of the gods of nature, to in fact recognize that there's a creator God and we can work with him in the care of creation. Paul says that love builds up the kind of agape love that causes us to build a home with another, to build them up as an individual such that they feel more cared for and having worth and integrity and dignity and value because they've talked with us, to provide a foundation on which they can build a life. It's a love that welcomes everyone home and excludes no one from the most precious, sacred moments that we share as a family of God. It's a love that defines the Christian life in all of its diversity of theology and practice. As you know, we serve open communion. That means two things. First, if you love Jesus, 
If you want to welcome his love into your heart once more, if you want to receive forgiveness and cleansing of anything that you've done that is wrong, if you want to receive forgiveness for not doing the things that were good that you knew you should have done, but you couldn't be bothered, if you want to experience communion with the family of God and you want to to be one with his people and true depth of love, then we welcome you to this most sacred thing we do as a family of God. You don't have to be a member here or a member of any church. If you simply want to say yes to the invitation, that you want to come and spend time with God in his true sacramental relationship, we welcome you. Second, it means that if you would like to love Jesus for the first time, if you've never confessed your sins and asked for forgiveness and cleansing, then now's the moment to do it. We will join you together in the general confession. We will together join you for the first time as you experience the salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ as he offers you new life and cleansing and empowerment for service, as he makes one with you, and as you begin a walk that will bring you to the ultimate salvation of your eternal well-being, where you'll be with God forever, able to breathe the air and the breath of God in that ultimate place to which we are all headed. Now, in both of those ways, we serve open communion, either if you are here from another church and you love Jesus, you're welcome to participate. But if you are, for the first time, becoming a part of the family of God, we welcome you into the presence of God and into his great salvation. So if you want to say yes to the invitation of the sacrament, then we invite you to participate with us in this most sacred act we do as a family of God.